Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. A couple of years ago, a cop was shot dead on a deserted pier in the tiny nation of Belize. The only other person there that night was a frightened young woman found covered in blood. By all appearances, it was an open and shut case. But not in Belize, where this woman was connected to a mysterious billionaire who basically runs the place. Justice will not be served in this case. She's going to get away with it. Or will she? White Devil, a Campside Media original. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, I need you to pay close attention to this message. It is not an ad. This is about Canada land and this is about you. You need to know that the news crisis is about to get a lot worse. You've heard about the layoffs. We're about to have news closures. And it's very likely that we're going to be seeing the defunding of the CBC. Where are you going to get your information from? What can you do about this? You can support Canada Land. We need you to. And so for this month and this month only, you can become a Canada Land supporter and get everything our supporters get for just $2 a month. That is an almost 80% discount. The clock is ticking on this. It disappears at the end of the month, and then we will not offer it. We need your support. We need to keep news coverage alive in Canada. Go right now to canadaland.com join. And thank you. This episode is brought to you by the Center for Addiction and Mental Health, CAMH. It's never an easy call with so many problems in the world to know where to direct the money that you donate when you want to help out in this world. But what I can tell you is that when you donate to CAMH, you're saving lives. We know about the opioid crisis. We know about the mental health crisis. They are doing the work. Help change mental health care forever. Your support will help CAMH build a future where no one is left behind. Donate at CAMH.ca slash CanadaLand to help us treat addiction and build hope. Hi, this episode of Canada Land Shortcuts is brought to you by Paytm. Paytm is the best way to pay all your bills at once. And to get you to see that, Paytm is giving you $10. Pay a $200 bill, get $10 back. When you download the Paytm Canada app and use the promo code CANADALAND. This episode is also brought to you by HelloFresh, the meal kit service dedicated to making cooking fun, easy, and convenient. Which is good because I don't find cooking any of those things. Each week, HelloFresh creates new delicious recipes with step-by-step instructions. They're designed to take around 30 minutes for everyone from novices to seasoned home cooks short on time. For 50% off your first box, visit hellofresh.ca slash CanadaLand and enter the promo code CanadaLand when you subscribe. What a weird week. What a weird time. My name is Elamin Abdul Mahmoud, and I'm filling in for Jesse Brown as we talk our way through a dystopian hellscape of news. An attack on a little girl that didn't happen. Luckily, people responded with grace and nuance. And a woman tells her story of a horrible date with a big-time Hollywood actor. Luckily, people responded with grace and nuance. This is Candleland Shortcuts. My guest, my companion through this wasteland, is Nahid Mustafa. Welcome. Thank you. Dystopian indeed. Do you feel good about it? I feel good, scared, distressed, and a little bit angry. 
That's how I like to wake up in the morning. This episode is brought to you by Mike Evans, Jacob Francis, Christy Troquette, Jeremiah Heinrichs, Eric Shammy Smith, Heather Gower, Julia Feltham, and Guillaume Bouchard. Hi, I'm Guillaume. I work in IIT in Ottawa. I support the Canadaland because you bring uh, challenging and needed conversations in media and politics. Even when I disagree with one of your point of views, the parts of your point of view, uh, I still find myself listening in because you're not confirming my biases. Hey, there's one thing that all of us have in common, and that's paying bills. Indeed we do, yes. Whether it's rent, cell phone, tuition, or property taxes, we've all paid our fair share of bills. The Paytm Canada app gives you the convenience of all your bills in one place. Whether you're standing in line waiting for your morning coffee or grabbing a bite to eat or about to watch a show, four quick taps and you've paid your bill. It's that simple. I wish it really was that simple, Elamine. It can be with Paytm. When you make your first bill payment of at least $50, you will get 5% cash back with a maximum payout of $10. Enter the promo code CANADALIN. The story sent shockwaves across Canada on Friday. Everyone was talking about it. Even Prime Minister Justin Trudeau spoke about the incident. On Friday, a seemingly frightened little girl recounted events alleged to have happened on her walk to school. Now, in a stunning turn of events, police say it was all a lie. Nahid, we're here to talk about an odd story, a story that I still don't really know what to do with, a story that we have to tell from the beginning. So on Friday morning, a little girl, an 11-year-old Muslim girl, said that while she was walking to school, a man attacked her and cut her hijab twice. Toronto police investigated that on Monday said the attack, quote, did not happen. Those are two facts that we need to establish. What happened in between is what we sort of get to dig into. Predictably, after the story broke, there was an outpouring of outrage at the attack, which, again, did not happen, and support for the victim who again, was not a victim. All levels of government tweeted and released statements condemning the attack. The prime minister tweeted that he wants her to know that this is not what Canada is and this is not who Canadians are. What was your initial response? Um, Okay, well, it's hard to say. I guess the thing that surprised me the most was how public it became, how quickly. Um, And there was this huge press conference with this little girl's face everywhere, her name in the press. And the thing is, you know, if this had actually, if this had actually happened and this had sort of ended up as a hate crime or or as an assault, um, there would be a publication ban on her name. And so I was very confused by what are the factors that generated that press conference? Um, you know, where was that pressure to go public coming from? Yeah, you're speaking to this, uh, you know, great mystery that at least at the time that we're recording this, uh, we don't know how that press conference got started. Yeah. Right. Like that was a few hours after the initial police report. uh, The Toronto District School Board had this tearful child Mm -hmm. um, in front of a bunch of cameras, national cameras. How could that even happen? I think it was a terrible idea. I think it was a really terrible idea. And you know, and at the time, of course, our assumption was this kid has been victimized. And to then get her to replay so publicly what happened to her, um, you know, that would be further traumatizing her. I mean, she's only 11 years old. And possibly in her 11-year-old mind, she didn't even realize that making up this story would lead to anything other than her mom coming to school or her dad coming to school to pick her up. Right. Right? Like, she's 11. 
she's 11. So maybe in her 11-year-old mind, she's thinking, I'll tell this story and mom and dad will pick me up and I get to stay home for a few. Like, who knows, right? And meanwhile, it triggers the school and the school board and the cops and the prime minister and the premier and et cetera, et cetera. And I, I, I'd really, I really wonder what was going through her head. I'm obviously choosing not to name her. So many others are choosing not to name her. But I'd like to take a minute to, you know, shame some of the outlets that continue to, to do so. Uh, the Toronto Sun, for example, continues to name her. I saw Anthony Fury's column still doing so. She's an 11-year-old girl who's now probably facing one of the most traumatizing moments of her life. I think it's really complicated. And, you know, I think that we need to sort of step back and let this kid, you know, debrief. Mm-hmm. What does it say, do you think, about us that this was so easy to believe because to me this was so easy to believe that this happened and the reason that it was so easy to believe was because hate crimes against muslims in this country have been on the rise right like they've been going up they went up significantly from 2012 mm-hmm. to 2015 they took a little dip in 2016 and the little dip was that quebec had 20 fewer hate crimes that year mm-hmm. well guess what in 2017 quebec police tell us that you know hate crimes against muslims are coming back up You know, the thing is, as with so many things, the facts of things ultimately end up being less relevant than what those claims are shorthands for, if that makes any sense. And so when you talk about if when you use the term Islamophobia or you use the term Islamophobe, it's basically signaling a particular positioning, political positioning. And those who use those terms and embrace those terms um, are saying one thing about what they think is real. And those who reject those terms are saying something about what they think is real. Right. Right. And there is, you know, there was some ridiculous column in the Washington Post. I mean, come on, man. Like, who was the guy that wrote it? J.J. McCullough. It was essentially this tirade that included claims that, you know, or accusations that the prime minister had been sort of roped in by radical Islam and, and this kind of thing. And, you know, when When you have people making these kinds of claims, you know, in that environment, it becomes highly believable that you're going to think some 11-year-old was accosted and assaulted by a man on a public street on her way to school. Yes. It becomes immensely believable. Um, While one is relieved that this thing didn't actually happen and this child is saved from this type of trauma, there's a whole other kind of trauma that she's going to have to go through when she realizes, uh, which she will, if not today, next year or the year after, well, she will realize what kind of response this generated. I think it just, I think the believability of it speaks to the fact that we have decided to take Muslims in this country and turn them into a shorthand for either all of the things we want to embrace or all of the things we hope to reject. You know, speaking of uh, taking Muslims and turning them into shorthands, uh, I want to touch on uh, Ezra Levant's response to this because Ezra and company completely lost it, right? Like this was the story that they have been waiting for, it seems, uh, from the way that they've been treating it. Uh, there were accusations of the CBC and liberals colluding um, to sort of concoct this little story. Uh, I think Ezra Levant at one point tweeted that this this little girl's mother broke the law. We don't know anything about the story, but he he wants he wants this to be investigated under some sort of you know criminal code section. David Mastracci had this great tweet when he said, uh, "When a white eleven year old girl lies, we see it as her mistake alone, and one that can be excused due to her age." In the case of the hijab cutting story, the girl's mistake is used to make all Muslims seem suspicious. Suspicious. That's Islamophobia. That's a good example of Islamophobia. 
yeah, it's Islamophobia, but it's also something that, you know, um, all kinds of people in this country have faced. I mean, the mistake of one single indigenous person is never his or her own mistake. It's always the mistake of this entire, you know, set of people. Um, so that's not surprising. And and it's not surprising that Ezra Levant and co. would sort of go on this unhinged rant, like, you know, what else would one expect? We're all colluding, Ezra, all of us. You know, when Muslims got together and we voted, you know, for our king and queen, this was part of what we had decided to do, that we were going to allow our king and queen to collude with the CBC and the liberals to come up with narratives that sort of show how victimized we are. Muslim this is how the, the Islamo-Illuminati work, right, what can I say? <laughs> it's worth pointing out that it is, in fact, two Muslims hosting a show called Canada Land. This is the beginning of the takeover. Totally is. Creeping Sharia, bitches. <laughs> Well, elsewhere, another story has lit up the internet this weekend. Babe.net published an account of a woman simply identified as Grace. It was called, I went on a date with Aziz Ansari. It turned into the worst night of my life. It's some 3,000 words written by Katie Way, and it details allegations of sexual misconduct against the comedian. Grace shared that the next day she texted Ansari, quote, When we got back to your place, you ignored clear nonverbal cues. You kept going with advances. I want to make sure you're aware so maybe the next girl doesn't have to cry on the ride home. Ansari issued a statement saying he took her words to heart and responded privately after taking the time to process what she had said. Right. Enter public discourse. Yeah, wow. I personally am still processing it a little bit. Um, I've kind of felt like I'm done reading the responses and then the responses to the responses and the responses to those responses. Sure. Um, Part of the problem of this is that the way that the details of what he did were written uh, right. because he didn't make comment in that piece. Uh, so, I mean, and the journalistic problems with the item, that's that's a different separate conversation because there are a lot of journalistic problems with it. Um, but, yeah, I mean, it's, you know, from his point of view, he wasn't thoughtful enough. He was actually surprised to hear that she felt this way. From her point of view, she was assaulted. And... You know, people will like to say, well, does it meet the legal burden of it? And that's not even what we're talking about. The point is she felt violated. This is, the, you know, men and women are fundamentally having two different conversations and they're not compatible conversations. How do you start to talk about the same thing? I think that's where the problem is. Where do you start to talk about the same thing? And part of this, I think, is also the problem of how we have come to expect these relationships, right? You know, years ago, you know the character of Elaine on Seinfeld? Yes. She had made this comment about how sometimes you just give in because you just want to go to sleep, right? And that resonated with women, IRL, because this is pre-internet days. And it's, it's a sentiment that's recognized across the board by all kinds of women. And so it's, it's, there's a level of acceptance that there's going to be this persistent, um, you know, this persistent ask, and you can either fight about it or you can give in, right? Does that make it correct? Does it make it right? I'm not saying any of those things. I'm saying that we recognize this dynamic and it's not a new dynamic. And so the question then becomes that if this dynamic hasn't shifted, but the conversation about this dynamic has shifted and the dynamic hasn't kept up with the conversation, this is when you get these kinds of problems. And I'm not talking about, you know, the obvious overt someone grabs you and does what he wants or someone won't let you go, like, you know, the violence. I'm talking about the sort of the Grace and the Aziz Ansari situation where it's two people 
together by choice who are having two very different experiences at the same time. That might be a changing sexual norm. You know what I mean? It like, could be. It yeah. could be. But so in the interim, we're going to have Grace and Aziz Ansari. The amazing thing about this is that at no point does do we turn to men and say, hey, where the fuck are you in this? Like, where? Yeah. Why aren't you trying to get that enthusiastic consent? Yeah. That's the new paradigm that people are sort of trying to deal in. Um, men have very much been outside of this conversation. Yeah, it's it's like the women are the conductors of the orchestra, right? And and you know, analogy. I'm just sitting here playing my instrument, you know, pun intended. And <laughs> you know, and you need to be telling me what I need to be doing. And it's like, well, you know, now you want to pretend that I'm all powerful, right? Um, when in actuality, you're the one that's calling the shots. Here's one other thing, another element I want to bring into this is that. Aziz Ansari was one of those men who identifies as a feminist, mm -hmm. right? Um, and Julianne Escobedo Shepard wrote for Jezebel a great piece where she makes an important point. She says, quote, if Ansari is publicly claiming feminism but treating women poorly in his private life, that deserves to be interrogated. Uh, here's a clip of Ansari who sort of says, you know, what it means for him to be a feminist. If you look up feminist in the dictionary, it just means someone who believes men and women have equal rights. And I feel like everyone here believes men and women have equal rights, yeah? But, yeah. But I think the reason people don't clap is that word so weirdly used in our culture. Now people think feminist means, like, some woman's going to start yelling at them. I feel like if you do believe that, if you believe that men and women have equal rights, if someone asks you you're feminist, you have to say yes, because that is how words work. Now, earlier you mentioned the journalistic issues with this piece. Shepard makes this point that she's, she, she takes Babe to task over its, quote, amateurish handling of the story and the, quote, unnecessarily macabre amount of detail. Yeah, I, there, there was a certain amount of salaciousness in the piece, which I think was really off-putting. I mean, I don't think that's the same thing as saying that uh, you told me too much, but rather, I don't think it was well handled. I don't think it was handled in a way that was respectful to Grace. Um, you know, certainly they didn't seem to give Aziz Ansari enough time to respond. Five hours, I think. Yeah, yeah, it wasn't enough time to respond. But also there was like, a, you know, there was a lot of editorializing in the piece. And, and it reminded me of that really sort of terrible um, Rolling Stone. It was Rolling Stone, right? That had done that that piece about the rape of of the young woman at the university yes. University of Virginia, right? Yeah. And so, part of the problem of handling these kinds of stories is how do you tell a story that is perspective driven, but stick to the facts, ma'am? Right. Um, and so, of course, you have a deep and broad conversation with the person who's telling this story, but you have to use real judgment in terms of how you and uh, in, in terms of how you relay the story this person is telling you. And you need to do it in a way that is nuanced, that's respectful, um, and that really um, doesn't distract from the key part of this. And the key part of this is her is her claim of this non-consensual aspect of what happened. And we don't need the sort of detail by detail, minute by minute, what he did and then what did you do and then how did he do it? And then, you know, it just, it was really distracting and I think it was just really unprofessionally handled. We just got so stuck in the encounter that people were able to come back and say, well, I believe her. Well, I don't believe her. And and that's unfortunate because that's not what's happening here. I mean, I don't think there's any dispute that, that the things that happened happened. The dispute is about the perspective about what happened. Right. Yeah, it seems to be, you know, like, 
clear that job number one when handling a story like this, like you mentioned with the Rolling Stone series, like no matter what, you you got to play defense for your subject. No matter what, you got to protect them from, you know, being ridiculed, uh, from sort of getting dragged publicly. And you do all you can to, to sort of protect someone who comes forward with a story like this, because if you don't, then you risk so many others not coming forward with whatever their stories are. You know, and, and one of the challenges is, I don't think it's the job of journalists to be advocates in in the sense of um, accepting narratives without critically engaging with them. And I know that I'm going to get pushback for that if, if anyone bothers to, because there's going to be this sense, well, you know, believe women. Well, yes, but you also have to see what your role is in that. Like if, if a lawyer, for example, were to take the approach, just believe what you hear. Well, no, the, a lawyer has to take the approach of what can I prove, right? And to some degree, journalists have to, have to do the same thing. And that's why you have to stick to the facts, right? The job of wholesale believing and accepting without any kind of criticism, you know, that's the role of your friends. That's the role of your counselor. That's the role of, you know, your, you know, your priest or your spiritual advisor. I mean, that's not the role of a journalist. The role of a journalist is not to simply note down what you're saying and regurgitate it out there and on the assumption that everything that you're saying is exactly as you've said it, because perspective is a problem, um, you know, memory is a problem, um, and then your own view of it is a problem. The own, your own bias that you bring to it is a problem, and this is, I think, and and I'm not speaking specifically about this Grace and Aziz Ansari story, but about talking about sexual violence in general. This is a problem that that journalists are having are going to have to talk about like how do you tell the story of a woman or a man um, who has said they have been sexually violated um, you know what is what is our job as journalists in that story and in helping to tell that story and how do we talk to survivors of that kind of violence and it's not this. It's not to simply, you know, be a stenographer and take it all down and, and print it all out. Because it does open them up to ridicule. And it opens them up to to mockery. And it opens them up to all kinds of re-traumatizing. And it's irresponsible. It's irresponsible for someone to simply say, here it is. You know, take it in as she told it to me. The one example comes to mind from the Barry Weiss piece in the New York Times is that, you know, she quotes the Katie Way piece about, about Grace and Aziz Ansari. He says, the quote is, after arriving in his Tribeca apartment on the appointed evening, she was, quote, excited, having carefully chosen her outfit. After consulting with friends, they exchanged small talk and drank wine. And she said, it was white. I didn't get to choose and I prefer red, but it was white wine. Uh, and then, you know, Barry Weiss sort of like adds this additional line. Yes, we are apparently meant to read into the non-consensual wine choice. Mm -hmm. um, that's a That's a good example of, you know, opening up your subject to ridicule. Yeah, absolutely. By, right? By saying, like, this detail did not need to be in She the sounded story. like a whiner. Like, it made her sound like a whiner. And and the thing is, I'm not saying that she is. I'm saying that it made her sound like that. You know, what was it she called? The worst night of my life. Yes. And she's telling you, and I couldn't choose my wine. Like, it it belittles every single thing that comes after that, you know? And 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 it's a problem. There's a, there's a portion in that, in the piece, too, where she... She concurs about about the outfit that Grace chose. 
And the thing that came to my mind when I read that editorializing was like, you're not her best friend. You know, you're the reporter on this piece. You're not her best friend. It's not up to you to validate her outfit choice. It undermines the credibility of your piece and it and it therefore undermines Grace's story. I'll, uh, I'll say this for the story. Uh, the ways that I think it's inviting so much confusion, um, so many polarized conversations, to my mind, is actually inherently not a bad thing. Uh, going back to where we started at the beginning, like there are people who read Grace's story and can flag, you know, 10 things that Aziz Ansari did wrong. And there are people who can read and be like, I, I can't identify one. Uh, and in, in bad faith, at its worst, uh, this way of having this conversation is cause for a flame war. In good faith, though, like it's, it seems like an incredibly or it could have been an incredibly valuable opportunity to sort of explore the complexity uh, and the questions that like they just don't have an easy answer or even a final answer. Like we just don't know where we're going to land with this. Had the story been handled right, I think it could have been a doorway to that sort of more intelligent plane, um, the place where tweets aren't all, you know, like, like uh, all caps. Uh, maybe after this, you still can get there. But I, that's the greatest disappointment is that it could have been such a useful window into a conversation we need to be having next. This episode is sponsored by BetterHelp. Uh, it's amazing the things that we tell ourselves to talk ourselves out of getting help. Anybody who's actually gotten help knows that the process of getting things off your chest, of taking your stressors, your problems, and just like not letting them be bottled up, working through just conveying them to somebody, half of the battle is just doing that. You unburden yourself. And you know what? If you have a real mental health professional, no, they don't have magic bullets or magic words that make it all go away. But often they can help you see things a little bit differently and guide you to strategies or tools or to a new perspective that actually does help. As the largest online therapy provider in the world, BetterHelp can provide access to mental health professionals with a wide variety of expertise in mental health. Because you listen to this podcast, you get 10% off of your first month at BetterHelp.com slash CanadaLand. That's BetterHelp.com slash CanadaLand. This episode is brought to you by the Center for Addiction and Mental Health, CAMH. We hear a lot about the opioid crisis. We talk a lot about the mental health crisis. These are serious problems. These problems affect us all. They've affected my life and my community. They're not intractable problems. I don't know what's going to solve them on a policy level, but day-to-day -day helping people, that's what CAMH does. They do it on the ground when people need help, and they do it through research. The team at CAMH gave our team a tour of their facilities, and we were really just blown away by the incredible heroic work that they're doing every day. They treat everyone with dignity, and their research is seeking and finding real solutions for everyone around the world. Help change mental health care forever. Your support will help CAMH build a future where no one is left behind. Donate at camh.ca slash CanadaLand to help CAMH treat addiction and build hope. Want to do some duly noted? Let's do that. You want to go first? You want me to go? Um, I can go first. A Canadian citizen by the name of Hassan Diab returned to Canada after a 10-year absence. Um, a 10-year absence that uh, I believe his own lawyer has described as Kafkaesque. He was accused of terrorism by France for his involvement, his alleged involvement in the 1980 bombing of a synagogue in Paris. The evidence has never really been there 
It's been at best uh, sort of accusations. A lot of it has been hidden from him. France asked that he be extradited. He was a professor at um, both Carleton and the University of Ottawa. Canada granted that extradition request, even though the judge in that uh, that oversaw that request said there's really no evidence here that he's done anything. And in fact, there was clear evidence that he was at the time of that bombing sitting exams in Beirut. And yet this happened. And this man was trapped in this situation for for about a decade. He just returned. And, you know, we, we've had those conversations about these kinds of cases before. But one of the things that's been flagged repeatedly um, as one of the sources of the problem was really poorly written Canadian legislation, extradition legislation, um, which essentially assumes a good faith request on the part of any foreign government. And I, I think that it doesn't get talked about enough because as soon as someone's accused of terrorism, the default is that, of course, they did the thing that they've been accused of doing. Um, but I think that, you know, we really need to, just in terms of media itself, start looking at some of these issues from that perspective, too, like really digging down and thinking, oh, this wasn't just a travesty of justice, right? Like this wasn't just poor, some poor man that got victimized. This is like real. This is a this is a result of really bad legislation that needs to be looked at again and push on that. So until now, until you just said it, I didn't know that extradition requests were treated as good faith requests. That is, um, it seems so. Pretty much. I mean, the assumption is that if um, somebody is requesting an extradition, that you know that there's a there's a decent amount of evidence that this person has done the thing that they've done. I would hope that a country that values its pluralism uh, also understands that there's a lot of nefariousness out there and you know you really need to be careful about what you're doing so i hope the media takes up the the, the challenge of of looking at the story in, in you know in a more thorough way duly noted we didn't spend a lot of time this week talking about uh, the ways this me too conversation is playing out in canada specifically and even more specifically in the canlit scene uh, but on friday before the ansari story came out margaret atwood published a piece in the globe called Am I a bad feminist? Mm-hmm. <laughs> it also came out, you know what, inter- interestingly enough, the same day as a piece in, the, in New York Magazine from Andrew Sullivan, and he called his, It's Time to Confront the Excesses of Me Too. That's a whole other thing we're not going to get into, but sticking just with the Canadian angle, in response to Atwood's column, the creators of another Canadian podcast, the Bad and Bitchy podcast, Erica Eiffel, Bailey Reed, and Aaron G., wrote a piece for The Globe, they called theirs, Well, Are You a Bad Feminist? It's worth a read. Um, They spent a lot of time contemplating what it might look like if someone's version of feminism is not intersectional. That is to say, doesn't incorporate class or gender or race or ability or many other identities into their feminist analysis. I guess, you know, if you really have to sort of think through whether you're a bad feminist, like, I I don't want to say that you are, but I'm thinking maybe there's grounds for thinking you might be. Um, you know, one of the one of the challenges I think is uh, it is a generational one, right? This idea that um, you know feminism is more than just about leaning in at the highest levels, um, and it's you know, and that you you need to really think about the ways in which you perpetuate the problems. Um, I think this is hard, right? Like, I think it's hard for a lot of women who've seen themselves on the forefront of a fight um, and don't understand that the fight's not over. It, it's kind of like the other side of the coin of young women who say, I'm not a feminist. 
um, because they're basically able to kind of walk into, um, you know, and sit at a table that that's been set. Uh, and then, you know, you kind of don't see all of the things that went into setting that table. Um, not to use a domestic metaphor for for feminism, but anyway. Um, and so I think for a lot of older women, they kind of think about all of the things that they went through to get where, you know, to, to, to get to a place where women can have all of these choices. And they forget that while your fight may be done, the fight of other women is not, the fight of younger women is not, the fight of women of color is not, of indigenous women is not, and, you know, of poor women. And, you know, like I remember very clearly when abortion was decriminalized in this country, right? When the Supreme Court said the abortion laws in this country are unconstitutional. I was 18 years old. I remember when Kim Campbell was prime minister for her brief cup of tea in office. And for me, it felt like a moment, right? These are not things, you know, we don't have sort of these big wins today. It's sort of, it's kind of incremental these days, right? And so I think for a lot of older women, um, who've been doing this work, they think, well, we got the big wins, we're done. And if you don't appreciate it, then, you know, you need to stop whining. And then they say things like, maybe I'm a bad feminist. And they don't understand that the conversation has moved way past where they left off. And then, you know, but because they still wield all of this power, then they come up with all of these weird, sort of irrelevant things that just sound completely tone deaf. And then pen pieces like, "Am I a bad feminist?" That's certainly the the impression that you get from the from the Margaret Atwood piece. It's not that it's wrong; it's that she's standing exactly beside the point, and she's saying, "Look, this is a fight," and everybody's saying, "No, some the fight is elsewhere. The fight mm-hmm. includes all of these other categories that you're not yeah. thinking about." And she's just kind of like, "No, I think this is it." Duly noted. Now, hey, do you like to cook? I hate cooking. Me too. Excellent. Well. Uh, luckily for both of us, this episode of Shortcuts is brought to you by HelloFresh. Do you know about HelloFresh? I don't. Will they cook for me? <laughs> I mean, not really, but it's a meal kit service that's dedicated to making cooking fun and easy and kind of convenient for you. So each week, HelloFresh creates new delicious recipes with step-by-step instructions designed to take 30 minutes for everyone from novices to seasoned home cooks, people who are short on time. They source the freshest ingredients measured to the exact quantity needed so there's no food waste, all delivered to your doorstep in a special insulated box for free. For 50% of your first box, visit hellofresh.ca slash CanadaLand and enter the promo code CanadaLand when you subscribe. Let's set the scene. Trump had allegedly just said that U.S. is letting too many people in from shithole countries. So it's Friday. This just happened. And you're the chase producer, and your job is to chase an intelligent panel to discuss the maybe racist remarks that the president just made. And that panel is Conrad Black, Bob Fife, Laura Stone of the Global Mail, and Craig Oliver. An all-white panel to talk about a racist thing that just happened. Color me surprised! Welcome to Question Period. I'm Evan Solomon. That feel when the first question is to my dude, Conrad Black. Conrad Black, the paragon of reason, the voice of measured thought. Mr. Black, I got to talk to you first. You know Donald Trump. Uh, you've been on the record defending him. How damaging are the, these remarks, which frankly have been roundly condemned as racist? Not at all. Uh, the fact is, um, 
If it reduces the reverence for political correctness, it is a good thing. Now, I personally think that if he actually said it, he could have chosen his words better. And what I think the underlying problem is, is not his own mannerisms. He's quite a polite person, but, and he's certainly not a racist. It continues to be amazing to me just how much space Conrad Black keeps getting to defend Donald Trump. It seems to be his like part-time hustle. He's going to sue you for libel. <laughs> he sues everyone. <laughs> um, Listen, he spends a lot of time defending Donald Trump. I'm not sure that that is a thing that he can sue me for. That is a thing that he does do with his time <laughs> in the National teasing. Post. Yes. Anyway. <laughs> well, I mean, Get you know, me, well, come on. I mean, you can just hear the you can just hear the instructions to that poor Chase producer. Get me a defender. Get me a defender. You know, I mean, for whatever reason, we seem to think that any conversation about Donald Trump has to turn into a debate. You can have a discussion. You don't have to have a debate. Um, there doesn't have to be another side. It, there doesn't have to be another side. Sometimes people just say really stupid, shitty things. And you can just say, yeah, that was a shitty thing to say. But we seem to think that we need to now defend and oppose and, and have these weird. That's a, that's a problem of, of the business of journalism. But as far as Conrad Black goes, you know, I think there are still enough people out there that are impressed by his vocabulary that they feel that they need to offer him space because he sounds like somebody who's making a point. Um, and so... <laughs> to his credit, he did in that interview say that Donald Trump's comments were like inadvisable. But then he goes on to say that he's very sure that Trump is not racist. Uh, and I'm just not sure what wealth of knowledge he's drawing from to sort of make that assertion. You know, the idea that we're even sitting here parsing out... Um, yet again, an all-white panel discussing racism that has the likes of Conrad Black on it. You know, I mean, it's it's just, it's a cartoon, right? It's a cartoon. And if you're serious about having a serious conversation, that's not the panel you would put together. I can either assume they were short on time and the marching orders were, it must be done, or they simply didn't care enough, right? Which leads me to think, you know, then just do something else. Like, it's really not that hard to find people of color to speak intelligently about racism. It's really not that hard. There are plenty. There's, it's probably one of the easier things to pull together, you know? Um, and so you have to work really hard to screw it up that badly. You know, it, there's, there's a lot to be said about the fact that, um, you know, newsrooms are not especially diverse because you'd have to be in a room that's pretty white. I don't, I've never been inside of CTV News, but you'd have to be in a room, I don't know how many people are in that room, that's pretty white in order for no one in the room at all to be like, hey, it, it might be a problem that we're having an all-white panel to discuss racist remarks. The idea that that you can't pull together a reasonably diverse panel of people who have reasonably um, sort of average views right? Um, that aren't peers and lords and, and millionaires and, and media barons or former media barons and ex-cons, um, that you can't pull that together, right? So what's happening? Like, what's happening? Was it was it that these are the specific people we want on there for these particular reasons? Or was it that they were all in a coma? Like, I just, I really don't understand. <laughs> I don't understand. That's all I can say. I don't understand. 
your Canada Land shortcuts for this week. You can find me at Twitter at Elamine88, that's E-L-A-M-I-N-88. Nahid, where can people find you? They can find me at, at Nahid Mustafa. How do you spell it? N-A-H-E-E-D-M-U-S, T like Tom, A, F like Frank, A. I always have to say it that way. I can't spell it any other way anymore. We are on Twitter, at CanadaLand. You know how to spell that. Like us on Facebook and you will get our news stories in your feed. You can also go to our website at CanadaLandShow.com. Our crowdfunding site is Patreon.com slash CanadaLand. This show was produced by Abby Madan. Syndication is by CFUV 101.9 FM in Victoria. Visit them online at CFUV.ca. If you like what we do, please support us on Patreon. Hey, I need you to pay close attention to this message. It is not an ad. This is about Canada land and this is about you. You need to know that the news crisis is about to get a lot worse. You've heard about the layoffs. We're about to have news closures. And it's very likely that we're going to be seeing the defunding of the CBC. Where are you going to get your information from? What can you do about this? You can support Canada land. We need you to. And so for this month and this month only, you can become a Canada land supporter and get everything our supporters get for just $2 a month. That is an almost 80% discount. The clock is ticking on this. It disappears at the end of the month, and then we will not offer it. We need your support. We need to keep news coverage alive in Canada. Go right now to canadaland.com slash join. And thank you. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince? They exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com.